0: So Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and their relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C., and a mother of three. In practicing medicine for over 20 years, I realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight, and that health is about more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. I'm thrilled to invite today's guest on the podcast, the wonderful Sharon Malone, who I'm lucky enough to call a friend. Sharon is a physician. She's a national menopause practitioner, and she's a women's health advocate with three decades of experience treating patients, some of whom we share. As one of the nation's top OBGYNs, she's dedicated her career to shining a light on the health issues that women face and particularly those that are often overlooked or dismissed. Her current role is as the chief medical officer of Alloy Women's Health, which is a telehealth platform for women undergoing menopause. Sharon is continuing her mission in this role, providing women with access to the information and resources they need to make informed decisions about their health in their post-reproductive years. Sharon has been described by one of her best friends, Michelle Obama, as a steadying force in her group of friends. So often, women have questions about their bodies, what we know, what we don't know, especially when we're going through transitions like puberty or menopause. And Sharon is that friend and that physician we all want to have in our group. Sharon's a force for good and a true champion for women's health. And I'm thrilled that you're joining me here today, Sharon. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Lucy. So I'd love to go back to the beginning where you were born and raised in Alabama in Mobile as the youngest of eight siblings. And I'd love to hear about how you were raised, what it was like being the youngest of this rather large gaggle of kiddos. Tell me what that was like as a youngster. Sure.
1: You know, everybody thinks their story is unique, but I think mine may be, you know, amongst the unique stories is one of the upper echelon stories, because I don't think that anyone has one quite like mine. I am the youngest of eight children. We were three boys and then four. Five girls in a row, so I'm actually the last of five girls in a family. My oldest brother is 86, so between the oldest and the youngest, me there's 23 years. And so when I was born, my first four siblings were out of the house. They were either married in the military, in college. So, you know, even though I grew up in a large family, I didn't really, you know, I kind of had some built-in aunts and uncles as opposed to brothers and sisters. And so I grew up in a lot of ways like an only child because the next sibling to me was seven years older than me. And I also had very, very old parents. When people hear it and they start doing the math, they go, how can that be? Well, my dad was 21 years older than my mother when they married. Same husband, same wife, and they proceeded to have kids for 23 years. So imagine this. My mother was almost 45 when I was born, and my dad was 66 so you're talking about, you know, a one, you know, immediate family where my dad was born in the 1890s, my mom was born in 1914, and my oldest brother was born in 1936. So as you can see, our, you know, immediate family spans a huge chunk of time and sort of has, we've had experiences quite different about, you know, again, growing up in the South.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's quite amazing to think about how this whole career that you have established got started, particularly. I mean, you are a, a, an interesting character yourself. You also have a sister, Vivian Malone Jones, who is such an interesting person, who in 1963 was one of the first African-American students to enroll and graduate from the University of Alabama, despite Governor Wallace's attempts to uphold segregation in his stand at the stoolhouse door. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and, and what that experience was like for for you, for her and for your family.
1: Sure. The story in the retelling gets, you know, Even crazier to me because imagine in 1963. Now I was four at that time, so I don't remember it contemporaneously, but I do. You know how you've incorporated family memories so much you think they're yours. I don't remember exactly when she went. I do remember when she graduated. Um, But imagine in 1963, and that was a very, very tumultuous year in the state of Alabama. I mean, Martin Luther King had just, you know, been jailed. And the marches were going on. That was when you see those iconic images of fire hoses and, and police dogs, Bull Connor, that was all going on just prior to my sister going to the University of Alabama. And I remember my mom and everyone telling me stories that when she went, and she was 20 years old at that point, it required uh, Justice Department marshals to come accompany her. There was real concern about her life being in danger. And they told my parents that it was best that they not come. So imagine we have children, you know, who or about that age, or about to be that age. You know, your daughter's going away to college. All of this danger's in the air, and you, as parents, are told, don't go. You just have to, don't worry, we've got her. And... They had no idea what was going on, because imagine it's 1963, so you don't have phone calls and TV and texting or anything like that. So they had to just wait, not knowing where she was or what was going to happen that day. It really was a drama that played out in real life. And I think about it now, I'm like, how did my parents do that. You know, I would have been, you know, we're afraid to let our children, you know, walk around the corner and to put her in that position. But, you know, honestly, I think that my parents were people of great faith, as was my sister. And I think that, this is something that hasn't been said enough, uh, particularly about African Americans in this country. Uh, we have always believed, and this is not a unique thought of mine, but we have always believed in this country, even when this country didn't believe in us. And you know, when the lawyers from the Justice Department came and talked to my parents, and they said, "Don't worry, we've got her," they said, "Well, okay. Well, we're going to trust that you're going to take care of our daughter." They did. We did. You
0: believed. Her. They trusted. That's unreal. I mean to think of what they were processing in their minds, to think about what your sister was processing and that she just kept
1: going. It's, it's funny. My brothers who were then, you know, in their early 20s, you know, they have told me the stories of what happened that day. And my dad had this uh, old shotgun from who knows where that probably hadn't had a bullet in it in, you know, 50 years. And my brothers stayed up that night because you didn't know we were still in Mobile and my sister was in, Tuscaloosa. And, you know, they had gotten, and this was in the days where people would call your house and make threats. And we didn't know what was going to happen with her. What was, they didn't know what was going to happen with us. And so my brothers actually took turns staying up at night, sitting out with the shotgun that couldn't shoot him just to deter anyone, if anyone came to our house. And that was sort of how my family lived for the next two years. And the whole time Vivian was at the University of Alabama, she had federal marshal protection the whole time she was there. To put a little exclamation point on what happened that day when she confronted George Wallace with the full might and force of the United States Department of Justice, they confront the governor. He eventually moves, you know, the National Guard is brought in and she's, Gets to her dorm and she finally goes, ah, okay, I lived to make this day. She went to bed that night and and actually this was the event that caused President Kennedy to address the nation. His speech on race was done that evening right after this confrontation with George Wallace. And as if you think, it went, okay, she went to bed that night and woke up the next morning to the headline uh, in the newspaper, that was the same night that Meg Evers was shot and killed in his driveway. And for a, again, a twenty-year-old who now has to start her first day of classes, and you say, "Okay, have a nice day." <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know how she did it. I really don't. I really don't. How do you think she did? I mean,
0: what conversations did you have when you were old enough to to process what had happened? And it does sound like your family has told the story and told the story and has processed it through the telling of stories, which I think is true for so many families, right? It's like the shotgun story. I mean, there's there's such vivid imagery there of like rotating who's standing guard. What did she tell you about how she got through it?
1: You know what? The only way I can explain it to you is I think that she was so determined. And as she said, I I don't think that you say, oh, well, she just walked in and she had no fear. I think she had a lot of fear. But I think that she, you know, like the only way you can get through something really terrible like that is to really kind of steal yourself. And I think a lot of it, she just, I mean, I don't know, you know, anyone who has that degree of concentration and power, but you walk into a situation where everybody wants you to fail. I mean, you know, they want to prove you right. You see, you know, black students can't do this. They're not as smart. This is the message that's been drummed in you over and over and over again. And she had to go in there and prove them wrong. And I was telling someone about this the other day. I said, she went to the University of Alabama, and she left there, and she only had one friend that she ever kept in contact with. One friend. She told this story that the girls would sometimes be friendly with her in the dorm. But once they walked out of the dorm and she would see them on campus or she would go to the cafeteria, they would just look the other way. And can you imagine how hurtful, you know, that is to walk around because they didn't want to acknowledge that they knew her or they spoke to her because, well, you know you know what they would be called. And they, nobody wanted to be identified as being her friend. So, you know, when you're out in the world, act like you don't know me. That was sort of how she got through two years of school at the University of Alabama.
0: It's an amazing story. And I'm so glad to hear more texture to it because I've read quite a lot about her and I know she died in 2005. And I, I just, I imagine that was sort of a big moment for your family, what her existence sort of captured.
1: Right. And it was shocking because she died very suddenly. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a lead up and then we, you know, an illness followed by a slow decline. She died in three days. I mean, literally she had a a stroke due to uh, a very acute, severe sort of myelodysplastic syndrome. So you know what that is. So at diagnosis, that's sort of how it was found out after the fact. So it was devastating for us and, and devastating because, I, I, You know, if you knew then what you know now, you, you think about all the conversations you would have had and how you would have documented and, you know, gone back. And she could talk about the, her experience at the University of Alabama, but she could talk about it in the abstract. I think it was very difficult for her to talk about it specifically, you know, because I think she had walled off so much of that experience to just to survive. I mean, you know, if she ever gave it full throat, you know, I don't think that, you know, you know, this is, you know, what anxiety and everything that you're talking about, about mental illness, this is what it's born of. And the people who can survive it, you know, great traumas and the people who don't just sort of really depends on what your internal coping mechanisms were. Because, you know, if you think we have difficulty accessing, you know, mental health services now, imagine what it was like in 1963.
0: I mean, it wasn't really in the lexicon, the the words mental health, mental illness, trauma, generational trauma, trauma as a result of structural racism. I mean, you and I both try to treat and and see the whole person, the whole patient. And what draws me to you, Sharon, and to your story is that you bring your whole self to your practice and to your care for patients and now for your advocacy work. And your sister and you and you know, all of us bring our whole selves to our health. And so I'm interested to talk to you about how you decided to study psychology at Harvard as an undergraduate. I mean, catapulting here from age four <laughs> to your undergraduate degree. I mean, do you think the interest in psychology had anything to do with how you were raised or were you just naturally inclined to think about the mind?
1: Well, yes and no. I decided I wanted to be a doctor when I was in the third grade, you know, when all good career decisions are made. Right. Third grade. <laughs> so I don't even know why. I don't even know why. You know, you, you go to school, you're you know, you find out you're smart. And then what do smart people do? You know, oh, smart doctors are smart people. So I was, you know, that was that was the thought process that went into, I'm gonna be a doctor. And um, I had no idea what that entailed. I no one in my family is a doctor, so it's not like I had a, a game plan in, uh, in place. But once I got to college, I was always pre-med. And the question was, what are you gonna major in? Are you gonna be pre-med and be English lit? Or are you gonna pre-med and be something else? And I was fascinated by not only the mind, but the brain. And that was the era. So this we're talking about now in the late 70s. And this was when they were first making that pivot from the mind, you know, psychoanalysis and Freudian type things. And then they got into, they were starting to understand what the brain was all about and neurotransmitters. And I worked in a lab with this guy, who, uh, James Steller, who was in the department, and he did a lot of neurotransmitter work. And so I was fascinated with the brain. And so it wasn't so much a a pivot because, you know, I was looking at it in terms of how it worked and, you know, and how, you know, we were learning all these things. And I thought at that point I was, you know, still pre-med, but I said, well, maybe I'm going to be a neurologist. Because I'm so fascinated with the brain, right? And then I went to med school and I found out what neurologists did. And I was like, "Mm, no, I don't think so.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember thinking the same thing. Neurology was so interesting. It was a puzzle, right? It's like if you had a person with a right hand weakness and a right facial droop, then you would identify the left-sided lesion. All of that was so interesting. But how did you then take the interest in the brain to becoming a gynecologist. I mean, you know, to me, the brain is the most interesting organ. It's not separate from the rest of our bodies. It it informs, you know, everything from our everyday thoughts, feelings, and ultimately drives our behaviors as well. So tell me how you became an OBGYN or how you thought of it.
1: Well, I'll tell you, you know, and again, nothing in my life is linear. Before I went to med school, I actually worked for IBM. But one of my favorite courses that I took when I was in college there was a course in behavioral medicine, and it was actually, this must have been my junior, senior year, and it was a graduate level course. And it was taught by this, this guy, Herbert Benson, who is the guy who wrote the book, The Relaxation Response, who was making the connection between mind and body and how you could lower your blood pressure by, you know, meditation and deep breathing. He was that guy. He was the medical doctor. And then there was a psychologist, and I think his name was David McClellan. And he was this, you know, kind of psychologist who believed in faith healing and all the other things. They were sort of diametrically opposed. But the link was that there's a huge connection between your mind and your body. And you can't treat one without the other. Um, You can make yourself sick. You can make yourself well. And so that was always fascinating. And when I got to you know, after my IBM detour and I got to med school thinking I was going to be a neurologist and Lucy, I'm a little bit older than you. And you're absolutely right. The neurologists were the smart people because, you know, when I was in med school, you couldn't just get a CT just to get a CAT scan. You had to diagnose things and you would watch these neurologists and they would take symptoms and be able to say, they would put it all together and they would say, and the lesion is on the right side of the." frontal cortex. I mean, fascinating. But then what got me, I think, was at the end of it, you said, okay, now what could, what can you do about it? You know? And that's when I said, well yeah, that was an interesting exercise. But um I got to something that was I, I, you know, you have to figure out where you fit in things. And you know, you make a decision, am I a surgeon? Am I, you know, an internal medicine type doctor? Where, you know, where do I fit in the spectrum? And really when I got to OBGYN I think there is no other field of medicine that you take care of as many different conditions. You're a surgeon on one day. You're an obstetrician on the other. You're a counselor. You are a primary care doctor. You are all of these things. And I think what appealed to me, and particularly being the last of these five sisters, being drawn to women and women's issues was not foreign to me and you get to have really long relationships with people you know i mean i was at foxhall for 28 and a half years and i've been in dc for you know 32 of those years and so i have patients that i had continuously seen i'd seen them when they were teenagers through college when they had their children and that is a great privilege to be able to to have to see people through that many different phases of their lives and so that was the draw for me for obgyn and as you go through these phases yourself they're they're interesting to you at different times in your life when you you know when you're before you've had kids you, you like one kind of thing when you're having your own children you can relate to your patients because you're pregnant I'm pregnant we're all you know I understand this at a level that you know you really don't have to explain. So that was that was really the draw and has been the joy of my career of being able to actually get to know the women that I've been taking care of.
0: We need to take a quick break but we'll be right back.
2: Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe.
0: Welcome back, and let's get back to our conversation. So what my patients who have seen you over the years, Sharon, describe is, yes, you're a skilled surgeon. Yes, you deliver babies. And some of the patients that we have shared, you actually delivered them and then you were their gynecologist, but that the relationship is really the glue in the patient doctor arena that of course you have to have the knowledge and the skills, but that you really put a a premium on, on the relationship and sort of knowing the patient longitudinally helps so much with that. You see them through thick and thin. Can you describe to me what it is about women's health and women's advocacy that appeals to you so much? Like what is the thing that you see missing in the care of women? And where do you feel like your biggest value add is?
1: Well, I think one of the things that's missing and has been missing, I think, in women's health care is women knowing enough to be able to advocate for themselves. We live in that pivot. Again, and I don't mean patriarchal in a necessarily a pejorative sense, but we pivoted from the, you just do what the doctor says, because that's what the doctor said. You know, it was that generation. That's our parents' generation and and actually part of mine. You were not to ask questions. You just did it and be quiet and don't take up the doctor's time. That was sort of, you know, how I entered my practice. And I uh, joined a practice that had been in existence for 30 years before I got there. So. You know, from immediately, I had this, this amazing sort of uh, amalgamation of patients. I had teenagers and I had 80-year-olds. Immediately, they won. And you could see how the attitudes of the women who had been coming for 30 years, they had a very different expectation of what they thought that relationship that we were gonna have. And we had to work on that because I had to tell them, no, you know, we're I'm not here to just do your pap smear and say, fine, see you next year. We're gonna talk about some things. We're gonna talk about what's bothering you. I mean, to me, that's the art of medicine, not the science of it. What I fear, Lucy, is that we're getting farther and farther and farther away from that type of medicine. And we've gotta figure out a way to sort of leverage, uh, you know, the knowledge of people who've been around for a while, impart that to our patients, and that's hard to do in 15 minutes, but also to empower them to be able to ask questions, to say, you know, you know, we don't live in a world anymore with a a do as I say, you know, we live in a world where I actually encourage women to get educated on whatever it is that they need to. and, and, And we have to fight on two fronts. We've got to educate patients. We've got to educate doctors. And I think we have to advocate for, uh, for medical research because unfortunately, you know, women have also been left behind in that aspect of it. Women are not just little versions of men. You know, our physiology is different. Our needs are different. And they're just Not addressed. So when I say, you know, what empowers me now and what really motivates me is really to get women educated about the issues that they should be concerned about. I want women to not normalize feeling bad because they're, you know, the expectations of aging are just that, oh, and everything's going to fall apart and it's going to be terrible. And it's like, no, it doesn't have to be. And then to have women be able to access care fits their needs. It's so you don't have to just take it. But again, we've got a grassroots movement that we've got to start to get more research into women's health and women's health issues, and particularly women of a certain age. And by that, I mean, over 40, once you're done having your kids, you kind of fall off the edge of the table and nobody's paying attention to you anymore. And and I really want to change that.
0: I love it. And what I commonly see, I think, is what you see, correct me if I'm wrong, is this misconception about what Menopause is some sort of fixed beliefs that, for example, estrogen is forbidden, that it is only sort of for desperate circumstances and and has this high risk uh, for for causing breast cancer. And so what I commonly see is people who are, as you just described, sort of symptomatic from perimenopausal symptoms or even just from hormonal fluctuations before they even go through menopause. Um, And certainly postmenopausal women who are struggling with the emotional, physical, sexual, relationship-related consequences of not having adequate hormones or or having a tr- having trouble with their cycles not feeling like i or you perhaps would be the person to come talk to about like a marriage challenge or or pain with intercourse or vaginal dryness like those things you're sort of supposed to just suck up and deal with when my goal as i think is yours is to let people know there are choices this is your body. This is part of your anatomy. Your gynecological health, your overall health, and your mental health are intrinsically connected. And and to arm people with tools and to, and just to know they have choices, right? Like there are choices. I'm not here to tell you what to do and to stand on a pedestal and lecture, but to give you some ch- tools and choices. Now you may choose not to be on estrogen, but let me tell you the pros and the cons. And that's hard to do, as you said,
1: in 15 minutes. It is it is extremely hard to do. And I think it might be worth a little aside here for people who may not know what we're talking about. I'll try to give you the history in a nutshell. As I said, when I started 30 years ago, you know, women were taking hormones. It was common. You know, there were, you know, at that point about 38, 40% of women were on hormones particularly, and they were on hormones because they were symptomatic. Hormones, estrogen, not new medication. Been around since the 40s. So that's number one. And women took it because they felt the need to take it. They weren't taking it for no reason. They were symptomatic and they were having hot flashes and couldn't sleep and all the things that we associated with menopause. And then a funny thing happened. This huge study was commissioned by the NIH And they found that these women, they had like 30 years of observational data that said that, wow, women who took hormones had half the risk of heart disease than women who didn't take hormones. And they said, well, wouldn't it be great... If we could just get a study, get that codified, and because it doesn't even matter, we'll accept a small risk in, in, in uh, breast cancer, if we thought that was the case, which is why I looked at it, because we're going to save so many women's lives because of this decrease in risk of heart disease. That was how the study started. And yeah, and, and it was supposed to be a prevention study, but they enrolled women in this study now when they gave them estrogen and progestin versus just estrogen alone and and the control group and a huge, you know, 20,000 women in each arm of the study, here's the problem. They enrolled women anywhere, you could be anywhere from 49 to 79 years old. And it's hard to show that you're going to prevent something When two-thirds of the patients who are already enrolling in the study, if you're trying to prevent heart disease, they probably already have it. Okay, so Mm -hmm. duh, no surprise. They couldn't find, they couldn't prove the cardiovascular improvement. And then when they got to breast cancer, there was a slight, barely significant increase in the risk of breast cancer in the Women's Health Initiative study. And that was the headline. Doesn't do anything for your heart. Increases your risk of breast cancer. Increases your risk of stroke. Which scared women beyond belief. And and that was that was I was present when that happened.
0: Yes, as you just said, I mean, women just went off their hormones, cold turkey, saw the headlines, were hot flashing, night sweating, having vaginal dryness, mood instability, and worsening anxiety, and then of course you know down the road without hormones if needed it you know can potentiate osteoporosis and and other medical consequences so it was such a moment as you just described of where the headline was non nuanced and it really sort of punished women
1: yes and it would take a decade before that data was reexamined you know so that happened in 2002 so we're talking 20 years ago they stopped the study because it wasn't, oh, it's terrible, it's not working, and all these bad things. When they re-examined the data, they said, oh, well, that's not exactly true. The excess breast cancer, the excess stroke, all the things that they said were bad things, were only in women who were in their 60s and 70s. It did not apply to women who were in their 40s and 50s, who are the women who normally we would start on hormones? And they also found that for women who only took estrogen, who didn't take the estrogen and progestin, their risk of cardiac disease was lower. There was no increase in breast cancer. Their risk of breast cancer was lower. So you have to say to yourself, well, it can't be estrogen, right? How could it be estrogen? Those did not fall. But as it is with most things, bad news travels fast. And bad news is very sticky. It had two ill effects. It got women off hormones who were on them and doing well and were totally happy. It disadvantaged an entire generation because it's 20 years now of women who've grown up thinking that hormones are bad 20 years of doctors who've been trained thinking that hormones are bad and to be waved off and never sort of going back and re-examining that data fully and getting it disseminated. And not only that, but you didn't have the research dollars that needed to go into saying, well, let's do this again, but let's do it with women who normally would take hormones. That is, I think, the, the biggest disservice that's happened. And as you know, most medical research is funded by drug companies. And, you know, the medications that we are using in hormone replacement, you know, these days are readily accessible because they're available as generics. So there's no incentive from pharma to to do this study. So it's got to come from a government agency. And, you know, and I shared this article with you the other day, Lucy, that I don't know why people aren't shouting from the mountaintops. The study just came out of the UK where they looked at 43,000 women with breast cancer, now, And they looked and they compared them to 430,000 controls. And they said, okay, what is the difference here? And they found that of the women who had breast cancer, who were diagnosed with breast cancer, the women who were on estrogen only, you know, that between estrogen only and controls, no difference. Women who were on estrogen and micronized progesterone, no difference in the incidence of breast cancer in women who took or didn't take. The only group that had an elevated risk of breast cancer was those same group of women from the Women's Health Initiative who took the synthetic progestins. You know, I was like, you knew it, but now you, you know, you have some data to, to say, look at this, guys. It matters when you start your hormones. You shouldn't start them at age 75 because there's an, a window of opportunity where the benefit of taking hormones, not just the symptomatic relief, But relief of, uh, you know, uh, prevention of osteoporosis, there probably is a benefit in cardiovascular profiles for women who start them early before they get cardiovascular disease. There's a decreased risk in colon cancer. There's a decreased risk in type 2 diabetes. For women who take hormones and an overall decrease in mortality, there's like a thirty percent decrease, in, and I, by that, for non-doctors, you say uh, there's a thirty percent decrease in dying from any cause in the women who took hormones versus the women who didn't. So I, I think that there is a, a a huge good news story, but but here's the problem, and I tell you, and this is why one of the reasons why you know I was so happy to join Alloy Health. Is I realized that people and, and I'm talking doctors now, they're not as immersed in the in the minutiae and the detail about what's going on in 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 hormone studies and data the way I am. Just like I don't know what's going on in with hypertension and heart disease either. That's not my thing. So I'm gonna have to trust that you know that. But there's so few of us who do this and who are interested at this level. Um, you know, I'm a certified national menopause practitioner there are 1100 in the country for 55 million women so chances are you're not going to be in an area where you have access to a certified um, menopause practitioner And that's not to say you have to be certified to know how to do this, but only about 20% of doctors feel comfortable even discussing the simple things of menopause. So what we're trying to do at Alloy is, you know, we feel like we have to upend. Medicine has got to change generally. You know, this paradigm of you come to see me, I see you for 15 minutes, you take a half day off from work, we have eight minutes to discuss everything I want to talk about for the day. It just does, it works for no one. It doesn't work for patients and it doesn't work for us as physicians either. So in an effort to sort of leverage, you know, you can can leverage a lot of expertise over many, many, many women when you use a telehealth platform because a lot of that conversations that, that you and I have, used to have every day, I can say it once and someone can go and look at it. You can get educated outside of my presence. And then when we get together, then the, the experience is so much more focused and, and useful actually, because you've done those things, follow up questions, and you can do it on your own time. And so that's, that's, if there's any one good thing that happened with COVID, um, and this may be the only good thing that happened with COVID is getting people comfortable with the notion that there is a different way that we have to adopt to deliver care.
0: That's right. And as you know so well, I mean, one of the challenges among many in getting women the information they need about their own bodies is is lack of access, lack of time that the doctor has to either know all of the upcoming data or current data and to then spend time with the patient. I mean, you know, if you're an OBGYN, just to remind listeners, like you're delivering babies, you are talking to people about their breast exam, their pap test, and then You know, how do you then have time to talk to people about their sexual health, their urinary incontinence, their vaginal dryness, their, you know, perhaps unhealthy relationship with their sexual partner? I mean, those are all under the umbrella of of OBGYN, just like in my job, it's about not just about their cholesterol and their weight, it's about the whole person. And people tell me things they wouldn't necessarily tell other people. And to elicit those pieces of information that are crucial to people's overall health takes time, it takes trust and it takes out rapport. So I think you're right that telemedicine does offer this opportunity, if you will, to distribute more information to, to women and to people in general who don't otherwise have access to trusted, nuanced information. It's also so true what you said, Sharon, about the bad news sticks. I'm so struck by the fact that even my you know, most educated, most savvy patients believe that hormones are bad. It's It's sort of a reflexive thought process um, and I think women tend to get information from other women. They they're, If they're lucky enough to have you as their doctor, that's wonderful. But a lot of women get information over lunch or on a walk. And, you know, women, I think we think that that's where we should talk about our sex lives only or talk about our, you know, woes when actually these things do belong in the doctor's office. And I think the narrative among women is that hormones are bad. And I think it's so hard to undo a narrative like that. And and what I appreciate about you so much is that you're you're trying to kind of one person at a time, and now on a bigger platform, sort of help people get what they need.
1: Right? There is there is so much about this that, that, like I said, is so much more effectively communicated via online. And and I think the problem for women and for people in general, you know, everybody likes to go to Doctor Google, but you don't know. There's no context. They you don't know how to uh, interpret what that is. You know, people Google things, and you say, "Oh my God!" And you don't even know if it's a trusted source. That's Starting from the beginning, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean that that's that's true or what's effective. So we're trying to, you know, at Alloy, curate a space and and to just be entirely clear and say, you know what? We are going to tell you things, and this is science-based, FDA-approved things. We don't want to sell you nonsense because, honestly, um, this only works for me because this is what I have been doing. You know, this isn't a pivot This isn't, you know, I'm not a paid spokesperson for a particular drug and I'm going to change and do another one the other day. I mean, I think that the only thing that I have to offer and sell to anybody is I have 30 years of expertise and I know it, I've done it. I've seen every possible aspect and permutation of what's gone on for hormones from the 30 years before I got there and the 30 years since. And you have to have some integrity about what you do. If I had to say, who do I want to be and what is my value? Um, it's saying that I'm not going to tell you things that aren't true. And if I say it, and if it's something that I'm going to, that I believe, I'm going to tell you the difference between what I believe and what I know. And I think that that line gets very blurry for a lot of people just because, you know, this, is it doesn't mean it's true. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Does your personal brand or
2: business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www. .kglobal.com/podcast
0: And we're back with Sharon Malone. A t-shirt I'd love to make in bulk would be make humility great again. Uh, you know, I mean, doctors are not moral authorities. You know, I like to tell my kids that I know everything, but they don't believe me. We are here as trusted guides and that trust doesn't come free, right? We have to build it. We have to help people, you know, understand that they are the center and that we are seeing beyond just their medical data and to then arm people with the tools they need. You know, it's not a one size fits all exercise practicing medicine. I wonder if you could talk, Sharon, about the role of hormones in managing or helping manage PMS you know, postmenopausal, mood instability, um, because one of the things I commonly see is people come in all the time to me and they say, I think my hormones are off. And, you know, addressing mental health issues is much more complex than simply addressing someone's hormones. But I'd be interested in your thoughts about you know, now that we have even more evidence that estrogen is not thought to be.
1: How do you see that playing a role in the sort of mental health space? I think it plays a huge role in uh, mental health space because I think that we are now, and we're coming full circle back to my psychology and the brain days, and that is we have now a better understanding of what estrogen does. And I think that we've approached it before of just being a reproductive function and we'll manipulate it this way so you don't get pregnant. We'll manipulate it another way so you won't get hot flashes. But the reality is, is that everything in your body is influenced. If you're a woman and you have estrogen circulating, is influenced. Your brain, your eyes, your gut, your joints, yes, your reproductive organs, your skin, your hair, all of it. And you know, and to sort of take one piece of it out, and let's just even talk about you know. Let's talk about a hot flash for that matter, or irritability or mood swings and all of that stuff. None of it exists outside your brain. You know, when you get a hot flash, you're not hot because it's hot in the room. Everybody else is cold. Something in your brain has registered or told you in your thermonuclear zone of your brain that it is hot and and it sends a signal to your body to respond accordingly. Well, the same thing happens in the areas that affect mood, the same thing happens in the areas of your brain that affect memory, which is why women during these transitions, and it's worse sort of at when you're in those perimenopausal years where your brain is just fuzzy and you don't know what's happening, it's because your brain is responding to estrogen, lack thereof, and the fluctuations that happen in the female brain. We're wired that way. And so it's not at all preposterous of of course, it affects your mood. All women understand this because you know what it feels like. If you've had kids going through puberty, you know it affects mood. It,
0: you know it. You know hormones affect mood. You have lived it. You've had doors slammed. Mom, you're crazy. You'd like to think that is a completely separate part of the person's identity, but it's all interrelated. It's hormonal, it's behavioral, it's all of it.
1: Yes. For PMS, All of that is your hormones interacting with what's going on in your brain, your neurotransmitters, whether presence or uh, And estrogen sort of has a calming effect on the irritability that you get in the brain. So I say that to say it's not at all uncommon. It's actually quite common for women who are in that transition phase will come up with things like anxiety, you know. They will. They will have ang- anxious. They'll have mood swings. They, you know, they cry for no reason. You know, and even some cases of depression. You know, we can't look even with those things. And, and sometimes it's appropriate to treat them with antidepressants, but it has to be looked at in the context of where a woman is in her reproductive life. And you know, I've had many, many, many patients that I've seen over the years, and you say. You know, you look at them and you say, how's everything going? And they go, it's okay. And you go, no, it's not. You know, so, and then you just ask one more question and the floodgates open.
0: I was just about to say the floodgates. When, the, when, you're give, when you give someone permission to say what's really going on,
1: that's where the real work starts, right? But you have to be willing to hear the answer and see, and I'm, you know, the way I feel about it, that's my job, you know, because again, I have to treat all of you, not just the part of you that's below your waist. Or just, you know, say, go get your mammogram, all of that, you know, and all of that is, you know, and what's involved with being a complete human being. Um, And unless you have someone who understands that, you're never going to quite get the care that you need. And you're never going to quite know what to ask for and what you feel entitled to. So I think that, you know, the other thing I would say about um, this, this menopausal transition is that it usually happens at a very bad time in your life, generally. You know, the worst when your kids are growing
0: up and they're moody and they're going off to college, perhaps, or and it's like and you're dealing with the stresses of middle age. It's like God's cruel joke that we we have menopause right at that moment.
1: Yeah, we have a lot going on. And, then, you know, we're we're right in that sweet spot in your career that things are either taken off or not but you're at that time, you're dealing with aging parents, you're dealing with marital problems, you know, that may or may not have anything to do with menopause. It is a perfect storm for women having issues with, you know, whatever their mental state is at that time. And we've got to be sensitive to that and just make sure that we're not plucking off symptoms one at a time. And I think that happens sometimes when women who are in this menopausal transition state, and by that I mean anywhere between 40 and about 50, um, and these things start happening, and they start... And because you're not aware of the fact that they're all under the rubric of being of menopausal transition, you'll see an endocrinologist because you're gaining weight. You'll see a rheumatologist because your joints hurt. You'll see a psychologist or a psychiatrist because you're depressed and irritable. And everybody's just looking at each little part. When you think about it, you know, there may be, maybe there's an overarching theme about this.
0: That's right. One of the first people I called when when you and I were talking about this new study out of the UK, a 19 year study of over 40,000 women with controls um, showing that estrogen doesn't necessarily cause breast cancer and that it's pretty safe is one of my patients who's struggled with all the things you just described and who has the BRCA gene, so the breast cancer gene, and as a result has had her ovaries and uterus removed and has been told never, 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 never take estrogen. And I've been pushing against that narrative for her. I've said, look, you're actually kind of the perfect person to take estrogen because you don't have your parts, if I may. I can talk to her like that because we've known each other for a decade. Um, and, you know, she's been hesitant because the narrative is No. And I called her yesterday, Sharon, and I just said, hey, I just wanted to let you know I was thinking about you and I just talked to one of my favorite people, Sharon Malone. And I just want to put one more plug in for you considering estrogen for all of the things you have. She's dealing with depression by taking antidepressants. She's dealing with vaginal dryness by using a lot of creams and other stuff she's dealing with all of the sort of things that you do to circumvent the actual estrogen that you need. And I, she just the, talk about floodgates. And so, you know, maybe she won't take it. Maybe she will, but just to be given permission, I think felt good.
1: Exactly. And you know what, that, that story is the story of one of our founders, uh, Monica Molinar. And she was diagnosed, um, she was diagnosed with a BRCA gene at, when she was 39 years old and decided to go ahead and said, you know what, I'm going to have my ovaries out. She, had her ovaries out, and but now she's a 40-year-old woman who's been rendered surgically menopausal overnight and was miserable and horrible. And so she kept going from doctor to, oh, no, you can't have it. You have the gene, you have this, you have that. And she she said, you know, I, I can't live like this. And ultimately, she decided, she finally got to a doctor. It took her five years to find someone that would finally agree, imagine that, agree to let me take something that will make my make me feel better because I'm 40 years old. I, As a matter of fact, you do more harm to a 40-year-old in terms of her overall mortality by not giving her estrogen from the increase in the risk of cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis and, and the lack of sexual function than you would worrying about a slight increase in risk of breast cancer, which now we know we don't even, we wouldn't even affect that. But I say that to, say that illustrates, Lucy, this dynamic, which has got to change, because this is what I believe. And I say this because I do believe this, that women, when given information, facts, and you give informed consent, these are the risks, these are the benefits, you get to decide. And I don't see that there's anything wrong with it, but we have been approaching women not from a fact-based position but coming to women particularly when it comes to hormones you'll say you don't want this stuff that's going to kill you and give you breast cancer do you okay well if that's how you put it someone it's huge and I think that women can hold two thoughts in their head at one time.
0: Yes, we can, Sharon. We can also hold many moods at one time, but we can, hold, we can hold two thoughts. We can walk and chew gum together. We can understand that there may be an increased risk with XYZ, but we might want to take on that risk because quality of life is as important, arguably more important than quantity.
1: Uh, yes, and you know what? And I think that we have got to, and this is why I said we've got a war on two fronts. We've got to work on educating women so they know what they can' expect and what the risks and benefits are. And then we've got to educate doctors because doctors have got to stop waving women off because I have had many instances where i we've I've had this discussion. Give them we, we talked about it, pros and cons, whatever, you know You what does it is it better for you than you know, there are there more risks or more benefits? And only to have them go see their internist who have that conversation and say, oh my God, you have to get off this stuff. And I'm like, really? You know, again, and that's, maybe that's the, and I will say the arrogance of medicine and the arrogance and, and lack of um, respect for our OBGYN colleagues, because everybody thinks they're smarter than us and they want to tell you what you can and cannot do. But the patients are actively waved off on things that we've already had. They'll come back the next year and they're still having the same problems. I'm like, well, did you take it? And i like, no, my, my cardiologist said, don't take it, you know, and I'm like, oh, you're killing me. Oh,
0: I mean, it's discrimination and it's, and it's, it's bias. And as you just said, it's the arrogance of medicine when really it's supposed to be a partnership and we aren't supposed to deprive people of information. We're supposed to give them the information they need to make their own choice. And, you know, you and I will probably be dead before that is the standard of care, but we can keep talking about it in the meantime. And
1: we can, and we can set expectations for women because I think that, You know, again, you know, do your research from trusted sources, you know, and go in armed, Um, you know, and I tell women all the time, I said, you know, even what we're doing at Alloy, we're trying to get you information and access and hormones um, if you so desire, you know, because that's that's what we're trying to do. And again, and there are limits because let's be clear, there are women who cannot and should not take hormones. And I understand and I'm sensitive to that, too, because we're not going to go back to, you know, 1992, where we were in actively encouraging everyone to take hormones because we were so convinced of the cardiovascular benefit. But it's going to work for some people. It's not going to work for others. Totally get that. But you should have the information and be able to decide. And I, I don't want to get into this, this, this argument that sometimes you see, you know, particularly on Twitter, but, you know, where there are camps, there are people that are saying, well, I think that menopause is a natural state and it should not be a disease. And I'm like, that's fine. If you, again, if you are doing well and you don't need hormones because you feel good and you're living a healthy lifestyle, good, good for you. I am not talking to you. I am only talking to women who are having problems and affecting the quality of their life and they are afraid to take it. That's my audience. And for anybody who's in between, you look at it, you weigh the risks and benefits, decide for yourself. And I will, I will, I will leave this with, we only need to look at ED drugs. You know, you look at Viagra and Cialis and they will actually say to you right there on the TV, you can take this drug and you will immediately have a heart attack or go blind. And men are like, Uh, yeah, seems about right. You know, (laughs) I'm like, how do they get to choose and we don't get to choose? I mean, Sharon, that is the
0: million dollar question right there. You have been quoted as saying that you believe there are no accidents in the universe. I love that. So tell me from a personal standpoint, what experiences in your life led you to have this belief?
1: Lucy, I have had a lot of tragedies in my life. You know, I mean, I lost my mother when I was 12 you know i moved around a lot and my dear sister vivian who was like a mother to me because i lived with her after my mom died and she died very tragically so there's there's a lot of stuff in my life that that i can say that if i wanted to dwell in that space i could dwell in that space but there have been many 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 more things in my life that i think have been good i mean there've been things that i have not planned on that have sh- people who've shown up um, in times, even the you know from how I even got to D.C. and how I met my husband, and you know, just various and sundry people in my life that have shown up. I had no plan. I told you, I started this when I was in the third grade. I was going to be a doctor. I had no idea what that path was or how you got there or whatever. And, you know, from all the things that I went through from going to college for freshman year, hating Emory, transferring to Harvard. I mean, it was it was no plan. I, I applied to two colleges in my life and I went to both of them. So but, you know, it's it sort of it's taken a really circuitous route, but things and people show up in my life in in good ways. And I'm very mindful of that because I, I often say, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And I happen to find myself in circumstances a lot that I have to look back and say, wow, if I had planned that, I couldn't have made that happen. So I, my philosophy is that, you know, there are no accidents. The good stuff, as well as the bad stuff in your life, um, is there. You know, it's there to either teach you a lesson or, you know, you can learn what not to do next time. And you just have to be open to it. You know, you have to be open and not willing to dwell in the darkness and it's okay for a while, but you know, I have always chosen throughout my entire life to not live there.
0: I love that. You know, hearing you talk and knowing how you care for patients, it doesn't surprise me one bit that your friend Michelle Obama has said you are a godsend in your friend group. You're the person who's helped kind of navigate through transitions, through having babies, having grandbabies. Going through menopause. You know, it's so fascinating to me just for a second thinking about how, you know, menopause is the universal condition for women, right? So I Assuming mean, you live that long. And yet we end up talking about it with friends and not our doctors. But thank God for you, Sharon, as a friend and as a doctor, both. I always end with one question. If you were to give one piece of mental health advice to someone who is struggling right now, like a woman who is dealing with, say, infertility or uh, some personal life challenge, like what are some words of wisdom would you give to a woman who is struggling at some point of her, in
1: her life? You know, I think the most useful piece of advice is to find community, because I think we are all going to, you know, face challenges in life. And the worst thing at all is, of all is to really face that challenge alone. And you know what, to find people who understand you, who hear you, uh, who empathize with you, and sometimes we'll give you a kick in the pants that you need to get up when you don't want to get up. And, and I have found that has been such a huge source uh, of comfort for me, um, be it your sisters, be it you know your friends, your family, however you need to create that community. I think that's what we as women do. And we do best. And, and I said, you know, find people who understand you and who support you, you know, and wherever you find that. And sometimes, you know, in, in the medical community, we want to do that, but we have such a limited bandwidth. Um, but the people who are around you, who you're going to see every day, you know, or once a week, make an effort because friendships uh, and relationships don't just, you know, they're not just there for the taking. You realize that it requires effort. Um, and if you want to have good friends, then you learn how to be a good friend because this is the community that's going to sustain you, not just today. through the good times and the bad times, and nothing's, you know, everything is made a little better when you do it with friends.
0: I think that's such good advice, Sharon. and I'm going to think about everything you said. I'm going to think about the nuances of estrogen and what women need And you've taught me so much today and also in general, as we've shared patience over the years. And I just am so grateful that you joined me today. And I wish you all the best in your new adventure. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Lucy. I appreciate it. And you know what? And we're sisters of sorts because we're former Fox Hall people. At least I'm a former Fox Hall. We We were all born of the same building back in the day.
0: That's right. We were in the same building for many years. And, um, and I'd like to think I, I share the philosophy of treating the whole person and asking people, you know, what's really going on? Are you okay? That's sometimes the most powerful question we can ask a patient. And be willing to hear the answer. That's a great point, too. You can't just ask how you're doing and then run for the hills. You got to actually have the tools and knowledge of how to handle what might come after the question. Exactly. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like. Download and share the show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you like this episode, I'd love you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice applicable to individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C., Our delightful music is by my dear brother, the talented Walter Martin. On our way out, please enjoy his song, Sing to Me. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time, be well.
2: Butterflies. They fill my guts when I look in your eyes A heart that's young is filled with sweet surprise Only the innocent can sympathize I don't care About the funny way you wear your hair Someday you'll let me Put my calm up there Till then you're beautiful And I just stare Sing another lonely line with me Sing Sing it in a lazy melody There's no words to say Just how I feel It's just yodel, la listen to the funny things you say. I hope you never ever change your ways. Let's take a wander through the world today. I like all of you. reach the castle wall of you and sing a concert in the hall of you sing another lonely line with me sing it in a lazy melody there's no words to say just how I feel so we just say a lazy nothing else you need to bring to me, until the day you bring that ring to me, but either way you're everything to me, cause you sing to me.